0: All right, in their third and final screen teaming, Judy Garland and Gene Kelly start together in the MGM musical *Summer Stock*. And despite its riveting production history, charismatic lead actors, and the classic musical moments, the movie has not received the same attention as other musicals from MGM story Dream Factory. In the book, Come On, Get Happy, The Making of Summerstock, authors David fantle and Tom Johnson present a comprehensive study of this 1950 motion picture from start to finish and after its release, and they join us to share that story. David, Tom, welcome in. Hey, Good, thank you, David. Good to, Good to be back, David. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, so you both, just to kind of establish... Where you are at with all this, you both have been deep into Hollywood history for most of your lives. Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, James Cagney, Lucille Ball, Bob Hope, George Burns, Milton Berle, Gregory Peck, just a few of you that you've interviewed since you were kids. David, why don't you share a little bit of that story from your early days on this planet?
1: Well, Tom and I, as collaborators and a team and as friends, actually go back to 1974. So we've been together a lot longer than Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and certainly <laughs> Martin and Lewis. But um, Tom and I both had the experience when we were 15 years old in 1974 of seeing That's Entertainment, the compilation of all those great MGM musicals. And we were hooked from that point on. Um, then in 1978, when we graduated high school and we were about to start at the University of Minnesota, um, we started snail mail campaigns, with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. We we figured, you know, they were in their golden years, but um, they were still famously with us, and maybe they'd see these two budding, aspiring college journalists from the Twin Cities. So we wrote them, and lo and behold, the Green visits, and Tom and I hopped on an airplane in the summer of 1978 and had these transformational meetings with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. And because they were so revered. They just opened up hundreds of doors for us. You mentioned a lot of the names, and there are over two hundred more. the The culmination of all those interviews was the last time Tom and I were with you, um, David, in 2018. Was the public uh, publication of Hollywood Heyday, which was a compilation of seventy five of our best interviews. But during the time Tom and I were going to Hollywood, we had two home visits with Gene Kelly. We had a home visit with the songwriter and composer Harry Warren, three-time Oscar winner, and the principal composer of the score for Summerstock. We um, had an interview with Eddie Bracken, the great character actor, and then um, Charles Walters, sort of the underrated MGM workhorse director of wonderful musicals like Good News, Easter Parade, High Society, and Summerstock. So we never imagined 40-plus years ago we'd ever write a book about Summerstock. But it was intriguing enough that we were able to ask them certain questions. And, of course, some of that content, that primary research, ended up in the book that we worked on for at least the last four years and literally just came out.
0: Well, here's the question I have for both of you, and I I will ask you, David, first, is what was your passion? Like, what brought you to all this and and wanting to interview these classic stars? Because we've talked about this before. You caught all these all these legends really before they left us. And so you squeezed in some amazing, amazing interviews. Like what inspired you to begin with, Dave?
1: Well, the film itself sort of sparked our interest in musicals, but it certainly expanded into comedies, dramas, all of the really studio system films of that era. And Tom and I, I guess you could say we've had some, we had some chutzpah or tenacity or, you know, nothing to lose. So, You know, we threw that Hail Mary to get to Astaire and Kelly, and we were successful. And we had a snapshot taken with Fred Astaire, which ended up being like our Willy Wonka golden ticket. Because, again, (laughs) they were so revered, it just opened the doors for us. And so while a lot of people were passionate and continue to be passionate about the golden age of Hollywood, I guess Tom and I back 40-plus years ago just sort of had the nerve to do what we did. And we're glad we did it.
0: Tom, what about you? Like where we like where's your thoughts on all this, like in your early days about wanting to get involved?
2: Well, I mean, it really started with, uh, you know, four channels of television in uh, the St. Paul, Minnesota area. Yeah. That's kind of what we had before, you know, everything mushroom with technology now. And, uh, there was a musical, uh, film week every summer, on, uh, I forget what network, what affiliate it was, mm-hmm. and they'd screen Summerstock, they'd screen It's Always Fair Weather, Sing in the Rain, Royal Wedding, and and that was the extent of the, and maybe some of Stair Rogers stuff later, but that was it for the whole year with musicals on television, and we sort of caught the bug really early on, even before uh, probably that's entertainment, like Dave said. and. And then there, that was the era, too, of rep houses, uh, movie houses that would screen older films from time to time. I mean, now, I mean, you can barely find, well, you can barely find a legitimate movie theater now with streaming and everything else coming up. But mm-hmm. back then there were rep theaters, so we'd see Warner Brothers movies, MGM musicals, old Columbia films that Fred Astaire made with Rita Hayworth. I, you know, there was just a... a plethora of riches, you might say, to be had out there if you if you know, if you were interested. And and sort of that's what sort of started it. And and basically back then too, Dave and I would go you know, we collected old movie sheet music, you know, of, of the films that we love, the Esther Kelly, Garland uh, movies that we liked. And there were tons of, tons of bookstores, too. I sound like an old fogey here, but <laughs> we'd go to uh, bookstores in the Twin City area and, and get these old film books that were written by, you know, Leonard Malton and Dick Ban and uh, Clive Pershorn, who wrote this kind of authoritative biography of Gene Kelly. And so we'd read up on, on all these stars, in addition to seeing all these movies, and sort uh, and, and of it was a combination of kind of, you know, uh, reading the books and seeing the old movies that, you know, started us off on our path. And, uh, and it's continued, as Dave said, for about 50 years now. Longer than certainly Martin and Lewis. I think they only lasted. Oh,
0: yeah, I
2: was going to say way longer. Not that we we won't end up like, uh, you know, uh, was it uh, Gilbert and Sullivan or whatever, or, you know, (laughs) Rogers and Hart, but, you know, we're
1: we're still in there pitching. I hope we don't end up as Rogers and Hart, at least not Hart. But um, (laughs) the other thing is, you know, Tom mentions these repertory theaters. And um, thank heavens, a few of the bigger cities are hanging on, like Chicago with the Music Box or the Film Forum in New York City. Um, And I believe Los Angeles still has a theater, too, that shows some of the classics. And even better, they try to show all of them in their original 35-millimeter format.
0: So you're telling me about this is like for the 70s. We're talking about in the 80s that you were doing this. And, and, And real quick before we jump into the book. David, tell me your top three interviews that you were like that, like you never forget, and and made the most impact on you.
1: Well, I would go with, um, I mean, maybe only four. Stair and Kelly. I mean, Kelly became more than just one and done. We ended up seeing him at his home on two different occasions. We got Christmas cards from him every year. Oh, he couldn't have been a nicer to us, and even just credit Stair granting us that audience and opening so many doors. But James Cagney, known to be extremely reclusive. Um, he had an unforgettable visit with his home in Beverly Hills. It's a rather long story. I won't get into it. And then again, Lucille Ball. I mean, is there more of an iconic television um, personality or legend than Lucy? And, um, you know, we sort of got off on the wrong foot inadvertently <laughs> with Lucy. That. It's all in the Hollywood Hating book. But fortunately, Tom and I were able to um, pivot and recover, so Lucy... Um, didn't you know? Throw us out of a Beverly Hills home, and we were recovered. But it was very memorable. But <laughs> I, I mean, even shortlist Frank Capra was very memorable, and um, and
0: other people. But you know, that's just a real short list of a few of them. I love that. How about you? How about for you, Tom?
2: Well, uh, Stair and Kelly were transformative, as, as Dave said. But probably one of the greatest and uh, most chock full of interesting anecdotes interviews we ever did and the longest one we ever did together it would still be going on if this guy hadn't <laughs> died already was Rod Steiger. Wow. I mean, yes, it was I the only that. interview we've ever done where we had to end it. <laughs> <laughs> because he would have been, he would have been talking, you know, right now and he's been dead for like 20 years. Wow. I mean, the guy was amazing. He was, he was in a bathrobe. We were sitting on his terrace, uh, right above, uh, Malibu in the hills above Malibu and it was the sun was setting across Pacific Ocean until until you could barely see him, you know, was he was just this pulsating bathrobe in one corner of the patio that we're talking to kind of pass for the friendly ghost. And he had all these great anecdotes. He'd tell us to tell, turn off the uh, recorder. He'd think about these people that he co-starred with. And then he'd say, turn on the recorder. And he'd give these great, pithy soundbite <laughs> anecdotes about, uh, you know, uh, James Dean yeah. about Elizabeth Montgomery, Gary Cooper, Humphrey Bogart. He had this great, great anecdote about working with him. And it, it was just a fantastic interview. And, um, you know, it, it went on for like two and a half, three hours. was <laughs> Great. And uh, so that's really memorable just from a, yeah. a, a content standpoint of, of what we got. It was, it was great. But all of them, almost all of them, even the ones that didn't work out, like Stanley Donnan nearly kicked us out of his uh, house the first time we met him in Bel Air. And uh, that's in the Hollywood heyday book. That was, I mean, it was really funny. It was just interesting. And we, we got into the sparring partner match with him. And uh, and then like 40, 35, 40 years later, we interviewed him again in New York, and he'd forgotten all about us. He didn't recognize us, which was great. It was a huge relief to us that, you know, he, he didn't boot us out of his uh, apartment. We would have been booted out from his apartment. And his house on both coasts. <laughs> we didn't want that to
0: happen. I love you know, that. It didn't. I love that. Well, now you get where these guys' passion is coming from. The new book is Come On Get Happy The Making of Summer Stock. The authors are David Fannell and Tom Johnson. And we'll hit that next on 720 WGN. The book is Come On Get Happy The Making of Summer Stock. Authors David Fantle and Tom Johnson are joining us. You know, all right, Summer Stock, I mean, this was a movie uh, kind of unsung uh, in 1950, MGM. Judy Garland was really put through the ringer by Hollywood Studios over the years, which led to so many personal issues. It was her last film officially for MGM. It was a tough time for her and her career, wasn't it, David? Oh, it was definitely a tough time. I mean, the studio worked, worked people very, very hard, and Judy was
1: no exception. She signed with the studio in 1935. In addition to doing maybe two feature films a year, she was doing countless personal appearances. She was doing um, recordings. She was doing radio broadcasts. But by the time 1949 rolled about and they started production on summer stock, um, she was sort of at the end of her rope on um, her marriage. to director Vincent Minnelli was all, but over, she had a three year old toddler to deal with, which was Liza Minnelli. And um, she had a growing dependency on prescription medication. So, it was a very, it was a label of love by Gene Kelly and director Charles Walters and Gracken and Phil Silvers and Gloria Haven to just help Judy get over the finish line and complete production of SummerStop.
0: That's amazing. And, and producers at the time for this movie, they wanted Mickey Rooney, and, and who was often very well paired with Garland, but he wasn't the draw he used to be at that time. So, Tom, why Gene Kelly?
2: Well, Gene was on the ascendancy uh, at, at at MGM. He had just completed *On the Town*, his first co-director uh, stint with Stanley Donen, the guy that almost booted us out of his house. And uh, it was a great movie. It was a huge box office hit. And he was really about a year away from getting into *An American in Paris*, and then a year after that was Singing in the Rain*. So he was at the very apex of his popularity. And, and of his power, really, at MGM. And he didn't want to make Summerstock. Even Judy didn't want to do it. They, they, they thought it was kind of trite. It was a throwback to the, you know, put a show on in a barn kind of thing that um, Judy and Mickey had done. But the reason why Gene did it was because he loved and, and uh, treasured Judy Garland, who he had uh, starred with in his, his uh, film debut in 1942 for Me and My Gal. And he he said, and we quote this in the book, that he would wait an entire year if it took that long to accomplish, to finish that movie, just because if that's what Judy needed, he was there for her, you know, whatever come whatever may, and that's, and it didn't take that long, obviously, but... Thank God uh, she had such a strong shoulder of support in him and Chuck and uh, Eddie Bracken and Phil Silvers and, and Gloria De Haven. They were all kind of friends of hers, and as Dave said, they were there. They were all there to kind of get her through to the finish line and, and make the movie.
0: Well, the impression is
1: David, that... But the producer of this picture was Arthur, um, excuse me, Joe Pasternak. There were three main producers of musicals at MGM. Number one, Arthur Freed. Number two, Joe Pasternak and number three was Jack Cummings. And um, Pasternak knew that in order to get Judy to complete this production, he was going to have to wrap her around people that she liked and trusted. And in our book, Lorna Luft talks about how Judy responded best to people that she were friends with and people that she trusted. So we use the analogy... They were like a giant security blanket. They loved Judy. They respected Judy. And they made sure that they were going to get her across the finish line to complete the film. Yeah,
0: as I was gonna say, it was kind of like the little m- movie that almost didn't get made. I mean, it, but everybody was fighting to get it done for her. And I know there was a lot of fighting behind the scenes, too. I mean, especially with Gene Kelly and, and Nick Castle. I mean, you know, it, it was a lot to get through when filming was only six months long i believe at that time uh, there was a lot of behind the scenes infighting just to get to the finish line
1: well there was a, yeah there was a, there was about 44 shooting days in that 6 months so 44 shooting days isn't abnormal for those mgm musicals what's a little longer was the 6 month period it took to do it but i think one of the biggest things our book tries to accomplish is i think that hollywood lore is that summerstock was entirely a troubled production solely because of Judy Garland's personal problems. And we go to great lengths to really, you know, dispel that and talk about other significant factors beyond Judy that cause that six month production window. I was say, and David, I would say too,
2: I would say just to jump in on this, yeah. that this, you know, we try to bring this out in the book too, that this is a classic example of MGM, the MGM Dream Factory, Excuse me. At its very apex, as far as what it could do and how it could produce a musical, even under such duress, with different people sort of not totally, uh, you know, believing, believing the real. They were all professionals. They all hung together, and they all got it done. Uh, you know, and, and and that was really a testament to all the people, not even just the actors and people above the line, but the below the line, cameramen and grips and everyone else who, you know, the orchestra, the orchestrators, all of the people just, they they knew how to get these kind of things done back then, you know, and, and, and it's sort of a lost art. Every once in a while you'll get a, a great musical that'll come come out. Rob Marshall has done some great stuff with Chicago and other, other things, but it's really, really tough to do, and and this is a, a prime example, Summerstock, of, how great they were at MGM, and in everyone gelling together and, and coming, coming together to make a great movie.
0: Get happy has so many meanings, really, uh, when you think about it. For <laughs> the song that, that closed the movie, and, and, and it wasn't originally intended for the film until the very end. Shooting was completed. Uh, you know, Judy Garland. You know, talking about doing what it takes to get it done. You know, there were people surrounding her. You got to lose weight and drugs and diets and everything else. Mm-hmm and to make her look as thin as they possibly could but this song again so many different meanings about getting happy uh, when so much trouble was was brewing behind the scenes but they got that done too
1: yeah and you know the another myth is that get happy was a number that was cut from an earlier film because as you mentioned Judy looked um, a little more uh, thinner than she did in the other uh, scenes in the picture before that. Yeah. But truth be told, they wrapped in mid February. Judy Garland personally selected the song get happy and was back in front of the cameras within about a month. So it wasn't months or, you know, many weeks as so a lot of people think the other biggest misnomer about SummerSock is pretty much everyone assumes that mm-hmm. the last thing that was filmed was the get happy number. But again, it wasn't. It was Gene Kelly's personal favorite solo tap dance that he does with a squeaky floorboard and an old newspaper. That was actually the last thing that was filmed before they totally wrapped production.
0: Well, this is a fascinating, fascinating book. Come on, get happy, The Making of Summerstock. And you guys are both going to be in Chicago. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, we're coming to the um, Music Box Theater on Saturday Which would be the 14th of October at 11 a.m. We're going to be joined by an old friend of ours from the Minnesota Daily, the Chicago Tribune Movie. We're going to talk at 11 a.m., give a little preview of a film. Then they're going to screen a 35 millimeter print film. Um, We'll have a little talk signing. And then Tom and I are back in the Chicagoland area on Monday the 16th at 7 p.m. to do a longer presentation, not with the whole film, but we will show some clips at the um, Jewish Community Center, JCC, in Northbrook. And then I'll be at Max and Benny's Monday on October 30th at 7 p.m. So there's three opportunities to um, buy the book, learn about the book, see clips, see the entire film in the month of October in the Chicagoland area.
0: Love it. Love it. Well, again, the book, Come On, Get Happy, The Making of Summerstock, authors David Fantel and Tom Johnson. Always love talking to you guys. Love your passion. Your books are always fabulous. And have fun when you're here in Chicago. Thank Good,
1: you, David. David. love to see you down at one of these events. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, gents. All right. It's 720 it's, yeah, WGN. Well. Thank you.